Well, welcome to another episode of SSDN's Green Minds Podcast. And I'm Laurel here with you. I am co-chair of the Green Minds Podcast series, and I'm excited to have some very special guests with me today. Really honored to have them with me today. Some of them I've known um, for almost a decade, and some I just met through this podcast. I want to give a warm welcome to the three practitioners, partners, and collaborators of City Scale, Michael Armstrong, Catherine Gajewski, and Ariella Marin. How's it going, guys? Great. Thanks Great. so much, Laurel. Good. Thanks good. Nice to talk with you, Laurel. Yeah. And um, as you all mentioned, you all are all collaborators of City Scale, but you're also all the staff. So I have 100% of City Scale staff here on this call. And also want to mention that, um, our, which is very important to the topic we're going to be talking about today, is that all three of you have had experience in, in a city, a large city, in creating, implementing climate action strategies. Um, Michael, I believe, were you in Portland? Portland, Oregon. Portland, yep. Oregon, which, which is where you're seated right now, but you're in the city of Portland. How many years were you in Portland, Oregon? I was with the city for 17 years. So I got to see four generations of climate planning there and sort of watch mm -hmm. that evolution. And then I think in hindsight, see some places where it hadn't yet evolved and maybe could have, should have. So mm -hmm. it's part of what we're interested in exploring here. And then Catherine, I know I met you when you were in this with the city of Philadelphia back in probably 2012-ish. I'm trying to think. I went there for the first city city, city energy plan project kickoff um, a long, long time ago. So well, how yeah, long? Many moons ago. Yeah, many moons I ago. Spent, <laughs> I spent a decade at the city of Philadelphia in a couple of different roles. And yeah, um, at, the, at the end of that time, we're starting to ask a lot of questions and was talking with Ariella and Michael, and we were all kind of asking similar questions. And that's how we found each other through this work with CityScale. And then Ariella up, up to the Northeast, North, Northeast coast of New York City and being involved in city government, then also becoming a um, consultant with their uh, sustainability and climate plan. How many years was that all together, Ariella? Well, if you include starting off as an intern in the Department of City Planning, I was with the city of New York as an employee for approximately 12 years. And then when I moved on to consulting, did a lot of work with the city um, and sometimes continue to do so to this day in a very limited basis. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly, uh, not only do we have knowledge and passion on our on our podcast today, but we also have experience from being in the shoes of having to uh, help develop plans and then implement plans and doing reporting and all the things that we're going to talk about today. So I think that gives a good background um, into understanding of, of why we're here uh, to discuss this very, very important study called the State of Local Climate Planning Observations by Local Climate Action Pr Practitioners, which was published this past May of May of 2021 and reflects the dialogue that began back in 2019. Of course, a lot's happened since between 2019 and 2021, but um, I think that's probably shaped some of this, but I think it was going in this direction regardless of, of, of COVID-19 and um, some of the other things that have been happening, instrumental things that have been happening across our country and our globe since that time. So uh, first, I, I want to just dive a little bit into the intention of why this report was put together and why now. So do one of y'all want to dive into that? 
Michael, why don't you take that question? Sure. So I think we um, have been interested in this um, kind of evolving practice over the years um, and have heard conversations and, and participated in conversations. And at the same time, also felt like there are not many kind of written reference points or really places to have this dialogue around what is this kind of body of work we call local climate planning adding up to and how's it going? And so we're super interested in trying to create space and sort of a forum for dialogue around um, what, what are we learning? What are we seeing? Um, how did we get where we are today? Where might we be going? What's the same? What's changing? And really kind of support this uh, moment of stepping back and reflecting. And, and a lot of this goes back to a recognition that the kind of initial approach to local climate planning got essentially set up 25, even 30 years ago with some roots that go back still a couple of decades earlier. And in a lot of ways, we're still using that same model. And we thought, good time to step back and see if the model that got set up then, um, a lot of things have changed over this time, is the model that got set up then the model that is what we need to be doing now? Let's you know discuss. And so a lot of this is really in the spirit of creating space for, for dialogue among practitioners. And I, the one other thing I'd add to that is uh, most of the contributors to this state of local climate planning, most of us had worked in local government and also outside of it, some primarily outside of it. But I think one of the things we've come to recognize is that there's, there's real value in that shift in perspectives, you know, sort of like getting some, some stereo vision where you see things a little differently and perhaps with a little more breadth and depth when you can see them from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And our perspectives are still just a limited slice. So we want to kind of start this conversation, but really lots of others um, were, were really eager to hear from others and kind of test, does this resonate? What's right? What's wrong? So a lot of this was in the spirit of collective reflection and what's the time for now and how do we get there? Catherine, Ariella, did you all want to add any further to that? One of the things that's great about the work that we do, it's really flexible. We end up working with a lot of different clients and collaborators and different combinations and directions. And that kind of broadening out from the city government practitioner experience and perspective and still staying rooted there and being really energized by that work, but exploring it from different directions took us into different conversations with, as Michael was saying, with folks who were kind of arriving at similar observations and um, reflections, but from really different perspectives. And that really got us thinking like, maybe we're not just <laughs> divergent voices kind of, you know, the, on the fringe here, thinking about some of this stuff um, in new and different ways. Maybe kind of, you know, the gravity really is shifting in some new direction, but we're not having some of these conversations within at, at some of the tables that we find ourselves at regularly. And how do we think about kind of as a community of practice, creating space to have some of, you know, to ask some of the hard questions, to do some kind of critical analysis of, you know, our work, our emergent field. Um, and those are still questions that we're asking and really interested in kind of thinking through with others. But that's, that was the, the thought process that was going on with us was, wow, kind of we're in these really exciting conversations where we're talking about things that aren't coming up in these other conversations that we're a part of. Is there a role that we can play to start to kind of think this up and bring that edge into the kind of more to the center? Mm 
being a, uh, in the city of Nashville and being in the field of sustainability now for uh, 12 years, um, it's definitely f- felt like a conveyor belt sort of, um, you, you see that 80% reduction by whatever goal your city sets. And then you have these hurdles or stops along the way that you have to go through in order to reach there. That's been set as we'll discuss here in just a little bit by often outside, um, organizations and entities that are setting that. And in order to get off that conveyor belt, uh, It's easier to do that when you know you have others with you that are willing to step off as well as uh, beginning to look at a transformation, Um, the transformation in a movement, uh, which is not an easy task to to go ahead and uh, take the initial step. And I think that, as you said, Catherine, very eloquently is that some of these conversations were bubbling up, but nobody really probably champion it to the level that you all have with this plan and said, you know, it's okay for us to question what's going on. And if it's working, if it's not working and what, what can we do to start to have a sea change so that we make sure that, that what we're, we are doing is actually in, impacting people and um, everything that's living on our planet, which we'll go into just a little bit, a little bit more. So um, in terms of the work that we do in our cities across the country, it's, it is around greenhouse gas emissions tracking and uh, typically just to, to narrow it down to, to one thing that we type, tend to focus on and report on and say, you know, when you get asked, how are you judging if your city is sustainable or not? Oftentimes, um, I can say that I say, well, we're reducing our greenhouse gas emissions for our municipal operations in our community. And um, that is not necessarily the best thing to determine if that's, uh, if that's working, if it's not working. So can, uh, can one of you guys dive in a little bit more about why questioning the GHG, um, tracking, measuring, reporting, and is there still a role in that somehow, somewhere? There's still a role for greenhouse gas inventories, but not as big a role not as foundational a role as it's been playing to date for for a variety of reasons. The simplest reason, it's it's a lagging indicator and it's imperfect one with so many assumptions that go into it and so much that's out of the control of a city. I mean, most of the year-to-year variation is whether a lot of the bigger changes to date have been regional economic changes and and market changes, But, but there's much more to it. Uh, who cares about a greenhouse gas emission? If you're having trouble paying your energy bill, if your house is too cold because you have to decide between paying your energy bills or getting medicine for your kids or having food, if you're still dealing with floods from a storm and you feel ignored, if you have mold in your house, if you don't have a job, if you have chronic health issues, if you feel unsafe in your neighborhood, if you're worried about your kids and the schools, you have enough to worry about without worrying about a greenhouse gas. And I I think that's where in the report, you see this emphasis on focusing on people. It's focusing on equity. It's focusing on people's needs. There's this need to address past harms. Like we've created a built environment that is really unequal and really unhealthy for a lot of people. 
and not sustainable on its own. And we have to address that and acknowledge that we need to meet people with where they are and help make them whole and improve existing conditions as we start to prepare for climate change, you know, the reducing the greenhouse gas emissions and, and making our building stock more resilient. You're not going to get there if you just look at a greenhouse gas. In most of the big cities, like really dense cities, if you just looked at a greenhouse gas emission, you'll say, okay, energy efficiency for commercial buildings, which you know may create some jobs for some people who may or may not live within the city, and it may look good, but think of how many of the city's issues and people you're ignoring, which is a really missed opportunity because just to do that one thing takes a lot of political will. But if you actually were centering people's needs, what you would prioritize would be different, number one. And number two, since the city doesn't necessarily have to be the one to prioritize everything on its own, as, as Catherine said, it's about bridging and bringing those perspectives that are very different and, and having the coalitions that are going to come in and, and be part of this conversation to, to not only be on board, but, but championing the changes that are needed. And they're not going to get on board and be excited if you're talking about you know, a metric ton of a greenhouse gas only. So true. Michael and Catherine, did you want to address that question? Any additional thoughts? I think I'd just note that this notion of you, you measure greenhouse gas emissions locally, you've got a goal, you're sort of holding yourself accountable is so rooted in the way this practice has developed. And I think we've, it's easy to forget that the goal is not actually to reduce local GHGs. The goal is to contribute to reducing, you know, dealing with climate change globally What's the, what's the best role local governments can play in that and how can we support that and recognize that role in this larger context? It's not that there's nothing to be done around reducing local GHGs, but it, it's, it's not actually the goal. And then you hold it up against all of the real considerations that Ariella outlined. Mm -hmm. And this is much more about recognizing what's the role of the local community in this larger work while also advancing community priorities, because that's what local governments do and that's what they're uniquely suited to do. And they need to do that in ways that support dealing with climate change, but kind of distilling that into, we're reducing local GHGs, I, I think is pretty distracting. And that was, I think one of the findings we got to through these conversations around the state of local climate planning. If you're just looking at GHGs, you're missing the real picture. Yeah, but it makes sense. I think at the same time, it makes sense how and why we got there. It was, you know, a world confronting the, you know, the beginning of the climate crisis, trying to make sense of it, having these international commitments like Kyoto and starting to set up cities as population centers that had, you know, there was the justification that cities even mattered in this work because population centers equal whatever percentage of greenhouse gas emissions. And so, you know, da, 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 like one thing led to another and we really kind of organized and justified the role of local government in, in kind of addressing climate change through this greenhouse gas lens. And then we had to go figure that out, right? And like develop our expertise and get more information. And then this whole thing kind of started to develop and mature and got kind of bigger than maybe it ever should have gotten. Um, and we didn't necessarily kind of course correct along the way towards that more kind of comprehensive 
um, systems focused look of the work. And so I think we're there now, um, or we're getting there now. And as Ariello is mentioning, like really seeing this and, and we this evolution, like the work will always be evolving, but how do we accelerate some of the learning and how do those in government kind of, you know, the, the change is not usually coming from within government, it's coming from outside of government. And so how can we be looking at our partners who are working in frontline communities, who are working on the movement side of the climate work to see where we're going next, because they're always paving the way forward. Oh, just a paving, I'm trying not to do that. Um, but how can we be creating more connectivity, accelerating the learning, so that we're not taking kind of 20 years to kind of think about, oh, wait, no, that's an output, not an outcome. What are the outcomes that we all kind of collectively want to be organizing ourselves towards? I think those are the kinds of um, capacities that we're asking questions about at kind of at this field of practice scale. How can we be in dialogue with more people to see more about what's going on to get better and better about the work and how we're addressing it at the local level and with local government? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that Michael, you, you said eloquently is we need to be locally divergent, but regionally coordinated. So, um, what my takeaway is from, from that is that every city is, is vastly different, not only from how we operate, govern and uh, the system we have, but also from our culture, um, and the people we serve. And, and so having what has been a template, on not only national cities, but um, international cities as well. One template has not honored and recognized the uniqueness of of every city and how we have our own um, issues and agendas and priorities as it relates to uh, climate climate change and mitigation adaptation um, in our local areas. And so um, when you talk about how to be able to balance being locally divergent, but also regionally coordinated. What does that look like? Yes. So I, I, I do think this is part of what's exciting, this re- realization that climate work looks really different in different places. Like, awesome. Like we, we should feel kind of liberated to figure out what it is, figure out with, with others and with our communities, what it is we want to be working on in ways that are kind of responsive to climate change. Um, I think what this looks like, though, so there, there are many things that can be organized and done and, and sort of carried out locally. There are a lot of other things where, you know, these in, individual local jurisdictions are kind of at, at the mercy of larger systems. And so, you know, transportation systems, energy systems, all kinds of different state regulations. And to, to get changes there requires coordination with other, for sure, local governments, but also other kinds of um, coalitions, alliances, partners, et cetera. And so it's really just a kind of mapping of, hmm, what are the, what are the big decisions? Where do they get made? And who's influential? How can we be part of these larger, um, contribute to these larger things while tending to the things we have control over? And so I think often we see that playing out in terms of state issues. I think we also see it playing out at the metro scale with things like metropolitan planning organizations directing transportation funding in just a sort of narrow policy slice. But you also see it with things like housing markets, labor markets, things we haven't really figured out very good ways to coordinate around. And so for a lot of this stuff, it's not like uh, you know just 
just add water. We, we, we've got this mix already for you. It's like, oh, got to figure it out, but we do have a shared fate. And so figuring out how to support that kind of um, collaboration at often at the regional scale, I think is, is really hard. Um, there's a reason it doesn't often happen, but it's super important and it's kind of exciting. And I, I think that's part of what we, we want to create the space to let's, let's try to help figure this out. And it's going to look really different in different places. Cool. So it sounds these terms that we're we're discussing today, I, I, I would say at least I, I myself and um, probably our our regional SSDN group would agree that yes, like this is you're so on target. This is great. Uh, I'm glad we're having this conversation. But how do we evolve our practice to work more effectively to have that plurality of approach and working across scales and beyond government? So it seems so transcendent idealist that, so what do we as practitioners on our every day on our, on our, uh, just going down the escalator or going on the conveyor belt, how do we begin to make that change? I think one of the things that we're seeing that we need to organize towards at multiple levels is kind of getting to these intersections that we have been organized in a lot of silos, right? And the network etc. have been really organized a lot around likeness. Oh, we have the same position. We're doing the same kind of work. Let's work together. Um, oh, we're doing, you know, clean energy work. Let's get the clean energy folks together. And I think what we're seeing that's really exciting, and we're seeing this in lots of local governments, is that the sustainability staff are starting to work more closely with the housing staff, developing deeper relationships with the water department, with workforce development, starting, you know, starting to make this broader set of connections um, that have been pretty, those ties have been pretty weak to date. We've been really getting deep in our individual silos. And I think the, the work in the next, you know, in the coming years and decade is gonna be really about building out those relationships at the intersections. And so we're also thinking about that a lot with these networks. There are such strong networks in the city climate work and the local sustainability work kind of in the environmental justice facing work, everyone's been organizing through networks over the last 10 or 20 years. And how do we now kind of network those networks? So again, we're kind of starting to work at the intersections and bringing new perspectives and new relationships onto the work so that we're getting as kind of complex and interconnected as the climate work is itself. So if, uh, if I was to ask, so do I keep doing my inventories? Ariel, I'm going to call you out because you, you had chimed in before when we were talking about in greenhouse gas emission inventories. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I have to say that question that you had just asked, like, mm -hmm. how do we make this change? I feel like that is the question. And you may have noticed in, in that collaborative report we wrote, we didn't say, here's the solution. We said, let's keep having conversations <laughs> and, and bring in more perspectives. But one of the, the first steps along with what Catherine said is the need to think about how we organize and prioritize time as, as limited and resource constrained local government climate and sustainability staff. So it's both the organization internally within government as well as thinking of the, the collaborations and new types of governance models with all of those out outside. Just wanted to hammer that piece home that Catherine said. So do you still doing your greenhouse gas inventory? Well, it, it depends. <laughs> um, 
I, I think with limited resources, you have to prioritize what you put your time into. And if there is the ability to perhaps have a regional, a regional body actually do a more comprehensive greenhouse gas inventory, maybe not annually, but every so often to see cumulatively, hey, are we moving in the right direction? That, that, that could be useful. If there are state folks, or if we feel comfortable with some of the federal labs and their tools that could do really, really um, high level ones to give us a sense of where we are, you know, maybe do that. Do I think we need to do annual city by city greenhouse gas inventories that use up time that could better be spent talking to people? Probably not. I, I laughed and, and said, depends, because, you know, when I worked at the city of New York, one of the things we did was work with city council to make legislation that would require the office to do these every year. And I think that is part of the really interesting evolution that the three of us have seen from being in this space for so long. Like we helped create those those models. You know, we New York City started doing greenhouse gas inventories quietly in 2001. It released it in 2007 and said, look, we're just like the, the business folks. We have numbers because if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And like, look, we're real, take us seriously. And it was useful at the beginning. It allowed us to understand in those early years in the field where emissions reductions will come from and, and where those drivers are. You know, buildings, check. Transportation, check. Waste, a little bit. Land use. And now we're remembering consumption and, and other components of, of that. So now that we know those areas and now that the goal is to get to zero, we don't need to be so precise and every year check on it because we know the general direction we need to do. We just need to figure out the best way of staying accountable. I think that the thing I'd add to that is to, I, I wouldn't want to do a GHG inventory without spending some, some quality time with the question of why, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. Is there an expectation that it's going to kind of reveal some insight that we don't already have? Maybe, but, but probably not, certainly at this stage in the game. Is it a useful kind of point of engagement with some decision makers or is there some process value to it? Possibly, we definitely see that. But just sort of going through that exercise of um, just because we did it last time doesn't necessarily mean we should do it this time. Um, and just asking like, why, why would we do this? What's, what's the purpose? And given what we hope to get out of it, how much effort does it deserve at what time frequency, et cetera? So it's just that kind of intentionality behind. Don't assume you need one. It, it might be helpful to you for one reason or another, but ask yourself that question and ask your, ask, you know, ask your um, sort of hopefully growing body of partners in this work. Is this what we need in order to get us to our the next stage of our work together? Mm -hmm. Laurel, you can delete my answer and just go with Michael's in the edited version. I like that. <laughs> okay. Oh, I think they're, they're two halves of the same coin. It's like, it, it depends. Uh, speaking about asking the question, is this, is this something you need? Is this, does this work for you? So in the, the Southeast, um, we, uh, can, our region can be a little bit more challenging some of the other regions across the United States in, 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 in certain ways. And, um, one thing that has been useful, at least from our perspective here in Nashville, Tennessee, is that it helps move the priority and importance and urgency of climate change, um, by having reporting requirements that align such as a global covenant of mayors. I, 
going to the mayor and saying, we've got to do this because we got to report and keep our badges for global compliance. And so that sort of helps nudge the prioritization of the work we're doing. And I fear that maybe not just Nashville, but other cities in the Southeast, if they didn't have that behind them as nudging that forward, that perhaps their work wouldn't be uh, prioritized to the level that it needs to be. So how moving forward and in being um, in collaboration with moving in, in this evolution that, that hands down that we need to be moving, but how do we keep this as a priority when historically that's how we've made it a priority in some of our cities across the Southeast? I think that's absolutely right, right? Like having having these benchmarks of sort, right? Well, everyone is doing this and we need to do this. If we're serious about it, here is the thing that we need to be doing. We can replace those things. I think that what we're trying to get to is building that support, that political will, that consistency of commitment, et cetera. We can get to those outcomes through different ways of organizing our field and different ways of kind of prioritizing the work. I talk with a lot of mayors. I don't talk with a lot of mayors who find greenhouse gas inventories all that compelling. They want to be talking about other things when they're talking about climate change. They want to be connecting com- community priorities to climate change. They want to be talking about place-based solutions. They don't want to be talking about greenhouse gas inventories, but we haven't replaced that. And we haven't replaced some of those kind of international like, commitments and reporting platforms with better alternatives. And I think that's the work that we want to be shaping up and moving towards. And I think there's also a really good, hopefully our country is going to be moving towards federal climate legislation in the not too distant future. That's gonna be a completely different reporting requirement and relationship across levels of government than exists right now. How do we start anticipating that and thinking about what a best version of that might look like and moving towards that as we kind of create better and next alternatives rather than just kind of reforming the imperfect thing that we need to move beyond and grow beyond. Um, I think that's some of the work that SSDN and others can really show the way forward on, because I think some of the most exciting work in the country right now on climate is happening in the Southeast. We should be lifting up those community solutions and lifting up um, the work that's happening in all sorts of different contexts, not talking about greenhouse gas inventories, because that's really failing to motivate people to act in the way and at the scale that we need to. Michael, Ariella, do you all have anything to add to that? Okay. Um, Well, so, so just as we are looking towards the best sort of governments or systems and in systems you have, um, sustainability directors, climate chief service officers, all different kinds of titles that can be positioned in many different areas. Some are directly administrative appointed by the mayor. Some are um, the head of a team of staff. That's an office that is in the mayor's office. Sometimes it is a division within a department. Um, And then sometimes it's infused throughout the entire city government as part of job responsibilities of uh, leaders in different departments and division throughout government that reports up to the chief chief of staff. How 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 happy, however you have that, but 
Um, that placement has transitioned over the years. Of course, when um, USDN first started, it was the, the funding of funding that position in the mayor's office, which one of the reasons that Gov think, think to USDN was created was to help ensure that those positions stayed and grew um, and the importance and value of that. So if, if, as we talk about this evolution of climate field change, what would be the optimal positioning within a system uh, to help implement this work that has the greatest impact on people? That's a good question. I'm not going to answer it, but that's a great question. Yeah, so this is, I love studying the different organizational models that different cities have, especially looking at the history of it, because there are many cities where from administration to administration, this has um, evolved and gone back and forth. And, and partially it's because there's trade-offs from if you're in an operating agency, you're closer to where the work gets done and you have the street cred versus being in a mayor's office where you have the power of the mayor's office, but you're also like separate from, from the work. And so I think the answer is a few things. <laughs> One, it depends, just like every answer we've given, it depends. Um, it depends on the political and organizational context um, and specifically the, the ad administration on where there could be more most impactful. But number two, ideally the role of a sustainability director in office is really to help guide and organize and, and be of service and value to the rest of the agencies. Ideally, this work is just integrated into the way a city operates, into its DNA, from the way it designs and operates its buildings, to land use decisions, to affordable housing requirements, to the utilization of federal and state funding to support energy burden related issues, to health, to water, what we do with our own buildings, economic development. It just needs to be incorporated into the processes. Yes, the capital budget process and the operating um, processes, but, but others as, as well. And, and that's when, when we have success. So it's where are you best positioned to integrate it? And I think that's gonna depend um, where you are in time. I've been fascinated by the smaller cities who have one person in their office, but have been able to be so impactful because they have figured out how to leverage the city as a whole. And doing that required the administration being on board, who is elected the heads of the different agencies, like who are the commissioners, who are the partners, what's the political support from the outside, all those things matter to allow that, that situation to come to fruition. Love that, My Michael. Did you have something to add? Yeah, I, I think I think that's right on, and you know, it's both super interesting, and and I also think it's not something where there's like an end state of we we need to get it to this sort of static um, position. Um, I think to Ariella's point, we absolutely need this work to be institutionalized and kind of thoroughly integrated. And I, I, there's definitely a peril in kind of the siloed approach, which many of us have kind of seen and experienced. So we, we don't, can't have things be siloed. And at the same time, we know and often there's real value in kind of shining a, a spotlight on the um, 
importance and kind of connectivity of this work. And so there, there can be real value, I think, in, in having things shift over time, or perhaps you start with it in one place where it can get the profile and visibility that we know it needs when it's new, but it can't stay there because then it becomes siloed and disconnected from the ongoing kind of core functions of local government. So it does need to then become integrated and institutionalized whole of government. It's, I think we've, we've all gotten used to saying that that's key, but we have not gotten used to um, showing how that looks in practice. And so mm-hmm. lots of work to be done there. And I, you know, I think, I think continued evolution of where this work shows up is, is key and important and unfinished. Well, speaking of unfinished, so as practitioners, um, obviously we talked about ask, you know, ask questions. Is this working? Is this not working? What can be done better? Uh, Have conversations, have conversations internally, have conversations externally, have conversations with other SSDN, USDN peers um, and practitioners are doing the same work. What are there, are there some other recommendations you have as we can be began to move forward together on this evolution? The really key question that I've learned that I wished I had asked more and now make a a practice to ask more is the how, Mm -hmm. because it's not necessarily the what generally, like we we, we sort of know the big categories of of what's, and we've been really good at sharing the what's as a a network of, of, local government practitioners, it's the how. It's the how we make priorities. It's how we design our programs. And part of that how includes the who, who is at the table, who gets to decide, who benefits, who pays. Um, So I know everyone who is part of of SSDN and other local government networks already deals with this how all the time and knows how important it is. Um, But for anyone else who may be listening, to me, that's the key question. And the how inherently involved in that is the who. Catherine and Michael, do you have anything to add? I think that, um, you know, it's really reassuring to be kind of looking for the best practice, recreating the best practice and I think that there has been some kind of socialization towards some gold star best practice and allowing and opening up for the variability and knowing that it's going to look really different in different places and that that's okay. Um, and shaping the work to local context and local needs rather than feeling the need, not that we can't be learning from each other. We can and we should and we will continue to, but Allowing for that variability, I think, is a big shift um, to make and hopefully one that's going to feel really exciting and empowering. But I think that's another thing that I'm thinking about as I work with practitioners. How do we make this next shift kind of away from standardization and towards the recognition that the strength might actually be in the variability? There are going to be some things that we're all going to kind of hang our hats on, right, Um, and that we're going to need to share and do together and similarly, but underneath that, I think are just a really diverse and beautiful array of ideas and solutions that I hope we create more and more space for. Michael, did you have anything to add? No, I think Gary and Catherine have nailed it. 
Okay. Um, well, for those listening in here on the Green Minds podcast, the report that we have been discussing today, the state of local climate planning observations by local climate action practitioners is available on the CityScale website at cityscale.org. Uh, if, as people are tuning in and reading the report, how would they best engage Um Obviously, we talked about the SSDN network and USDN network. What are some other ways? Can they reach out to you all, have questions, thoughts, ideas? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a, the, the spirit of this is to kind of invite and kind of support dialogue and discussion. And we, we would love to be a part of that, hear kind of what resonates, what, what seems off, what uh, questions it raises for people. You're asking some good ones, Laurel. Um, very curious to see kind of where this work goes next and, and realize, uh, conscious that this, the report is sort of a point in time, even in the two years, you know, you laid it out at the beginning, a lot has changed. What do we need to be doing now? What does that look like? I think we, we would really welcome that dialogue. Uh, you know, I do think we're seeing more and more forums, um, regionally, perhaps nationally, um, hopefully locally. And so um, you, you, don't, you don't have to involve us in those dialogues, but we sure are interested and we would welcome hearing from people by, by email, phone, whatever works. Great. And obviously one of the big components that um, is important to us is, is being able to fund that work. And if we are um, fortunate enough to be able to get the operating and capital dollars to support our work is great. But oftentimes we look at uh, private philanthropy uh, and private partnerships to do that. And um, it sounds like hopefully they will be in stride with us uh, along the sea change um, to make sure that we are uh, in parallel in our priorities and getting and accomplishing the work we need to do for our people. Yeah, totally. Well, great. Well, Michael, Ariella, and Catherine, it's been a pleasure having you here on the Green Minds podcast. Uh, thank you for all you do with CityScale, the work that you have done, continue to do uh, for and with city governments um, across this great nation. So I appreciate everything and I hope to perhaps have part two. Maybe we can revisit in six months or so and see how this evolution is going and some more thoughts and ideas and value to our practitioners who are tuning in. Thanks so much for the opportunity. You've been listening to the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network Green Minds Podcast. This episode, once again, was covering the state of local climate planning and with a report from CityScale. And a huge thank you again to my guest, Michael Armstrong, Catherine Goreski, and Ariella Marin, who joined here on this Green Minds Podcast doing phenomenal work. If you're interested in seeing that report, you can visit their website at cityscale.org. Well, I'm Laurel Creech, co-host of Green Minds Podcast, and And hope to see you next time on our next SSDN Green Minds podcast. Have a great day.